And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's the backup, time-limited, possibly never-to-be-aired Coot Street Podcast with Jonathan Schrader and Gary K. Whoa! Yay! And we're back. <laughs> sort of. This is sort of. Um, we are um, recording this for the festival. We've had two weeks in a row with guests, which is, which is good for us. Yes. Uh, we can get people to pay attention to us. And, I think they uh, pay attention, attention to us just fine, Gary. Well, that's very possible. <laughs> but this is a precautionary podcast, isn't it, Gary? It really is. Uh, this is being recorded uh, a week before the Locus Awards ceremony, and we hope to actually have one immediately after the Locus Awards ceremony, but that might not happen because having been to the Locus Awards for several years in a row, they first of all, it runs on into the afternoon, and then... A bunch of us go out to dinner, and then there's a big party which involves Locus and Clarion and I know I maybe Norwescon, I don't know, uh, and that may run well into the evening. But it's it, it, it promises to be a, a an enjoyable weekend, so I'm looking forward to going out there in a few days. I, I think it, it you know it does look like a great weekend. I've always wanted to go, uh, not because I've got a great passion for Hawaiian shirts. Uh, but because the group of people who show up seem very interesting, and there obviously are people we're hoping to talk to next week if it works out. I mean, obviously, uh, Lucius Shepard is supposed to be there, which is fascinating, mm-hmm. and I would love to have a good chat with Lucius. Uh, and, of course, we find ourselves sitting here poised, having just spoken to Mike Harrison in the, in the last 12 hours, and now um, looking ahead to the awards. I mean, there's not much commentary to, really to have about the awards because the results aren't known and the uh, you know, the nominees are mm. so i guess you know, we're still at the stage of having wished everybody w- you know well and hoping that they, they turn out it is worth no- no- noting that if this does go to air next week uh then the hugo ballot is now live online and we would exhort everybody who is capable you know able to vote who's a member of the con- relevant convention to please vote for you know your preferred winners that would be great. I've turned, I've, I've turned in my Hugo votes already. Did you vote Feeling... for us, Gary? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. Good man. I'm not sure you should have answered that question, but uh, there's always that feeling that like if you don't, at least, you know, if you're not going to vote for yourself, who is? Well, I mean, there is the point, and I think I think we actually talked about this on the podcast at the, yeah. at the time, if not, where I, I thought, oh, you don't vote for yourself. You don't vote to nominate yourself anyway. You 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 wait for the world to, to recognize you, and Apparently, by my not nominating us, we didn't get nominated that year by one <laughs> by one nomination, and and, and you, which 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 you tactfully called to my attention. <laughs> well, you know, look, these things happen, and and, and we, we should probably draw a discreet um, curtain over that, other than to say, you know, those things do happen at sea, uh, and you know, look, we'll still love you if you don't vote for us for the Hugo, not as much as we would have if you did, but you know, we'd still love you. Uh, but maybe we should talk about some of the things that have been happening recently in the science fictional news, Gary, because we've not done that very much. We haven't caught up with a lot of the news. I mean, certainly uh, we, we spent way too much time talking about um, award nominations and, and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, And we'll follow up on that when we talk about the Locus Award winners. Yeah. But we've had, uh, I think, a dark, a dark spring in the science fiction world. I think we have. Uh, yeah. Certainly beginning with, uh, with Jack Vance, who is... Uh, by all accounts, I, I never met him, but by all accounts, even in his last several years when he couldn't see and he was fairly, fairly housebound, 
he had this amazingly chipper attitude. And, he, he, um, he did. I mean, uh, I did meet Jack once. I think I've told you the story about going up to his house. Because mm-hmm. for, tho- for those of you who uh, aren't aware, which would probably be most people, Jack Vance hand-built his own house in the, in the uh, Oakland Hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, large, sprawling house, multi-story place that he built with his son. And he lived there with his, uh, his wife, Norma, his son, John, and John's family. And by the stage, I went up to the house. I was, went there with uh, my friend, Terry Dowling. Uh, Jack had been blind for some years. Mm-hmm. And he would write uh, in a study that was downstairs. And there was like a hatch in the floor that would come up. And he'd, he'd come up out of it, climbing up the, up the really? stairs. Right? Oh, yeah. And to, to write, he had this audio software that was turned up very loud. So you'd hear him talking it really loudly and it talking back at him. So mm-hmm. I'd been invited into the house. And I sat down to have coffee with Norma. And with Terry, and then you know, I heard this noise, and then sort of, boom! This lid flip, fl- you know, fl- flies up, and up comes this very ha- bluff, large man, you know, uh, to to sit down and talk about. I think we talked about. In fact, we didn't talk about writing at all. We talked about jazz and other things. Uh, he uh-huh. was always someone, from what I understand, was very reluctant to talk about his work, and certainly didn't with me. The only instance I know of it in any way at all is when he was on a podcast a few years ago with um, Frederick Pohl. Yes. And they ended up arguing back and forth about editing on some of Vance's stories, which I thought was a fascinating little insight into, into, into Vance's world. But I got some kind of a glimpse of the last few years talking both to Karen Haber uh, and to Terry Dowling about it. Uh, the conversation I had with Karen Haber was how she and Robert Silverberg would go over there every week or two for dinner to visit Jack. Wow. And Jack plays the banjo, or played the banjo, played the kazoo. In fact, in the last year or so, put out his own album. He did. He did, which you can buy online. And um, what would happen is they'd go out, they'd have dinner, they'd have a few drinks, and then Jack would pull out his banjo and his kazoo and he'd start playing away. And Bob, Bob Silverberg, Bob, is um, an immensely polite man with no taste at all for either the banjo or the kazoo who would mm. nonetheless sit there very politely as jack played his way through it and the way the way karen told that story you could see the twinkle in jack's eye from 30 yards away as he knew okay. that bob was sitting there pinned yeah. by his own courtesy <laughs> to and good manners to, to, to let while jack quietly tortured him but also i mean i, I, I would you know talking to terry uh, who would talk to jack three times a week mm. for, for, for hours uh, Vance was mentally agile and very um, vivacious, full of life over the last sort of five or ten years. And very much was, I mean, other than I think that understandable feeling every time he got out of bed that he wasn't sure that he'd, he'd get to do it again, uh, was in, in, in fine spirit. So I think from the sounds of it, he lived a full and you know, rewarding and somewhat mischievous life, which is not a bad thing to have done. And and, and and has left uh, an imprint which um, I suppose is indelible. I, it's interesting because I remember growing up on certainly the Dying Earth stories and some odd stories. There were some odd off, offbeat novels like The Languages of Pow and some short stories and that sort of thing. But I think one of the things that really has, uh, apart from, from people like us who remember mm. reading events, but I think that Gene Wolfe and his very openly stated uh, uh, tributes and uh, acknowledgments of Vance's influence has helped resurrect Jack's reputation a bit as well. Maybe that might be true. I'm not sure. 
Um, I'm not sure whether that influence is that uh, pertinent. I think it's there. I think there have been oh. other factors. I mean, I, I think the, the greatest – it's interesting that sort of for, for a non-technical man, the, the most – the greatest influence on his resurrection as a writer over the last 20 years has been a technical one uh, with the Vance Integral Edition team scanning and editing mm. all of his work. Um, and I think there's been a much broad – he had far more influence, I think, than people realize the time. I mean, I, I remember when the time came to do the Vance Treasury that – Dowling and I edited back in 2006, seven. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, there's a group of writers, and you wouldn't necessarily have picked them as being incredibly influential. Uh, Phil Farmer is definitely one of them. Jack Vance is another. Um, and both of them, I think, have been shown to be far, far, far more influential. And the one thing that's been nice is that with the string of books that um, Subterranean have published, they've now done eight of them, I think, it, uh, it's helped resurrect his visibility in the, in the marketplace, because my recollection of, of you know, Van, Vance as a writer, I did not read him as a young man at all, mm-hmm. other than I was given a um, Isaac Asimov anthology uh, when I was young that had had The Last Castle and the Dragon Masters in it. But mm-hmm. I didn't read any of his... I, I, and I remember seeing a lot of the graft and paperbacks of his books around in the mid-'80s, and then they gradually f- seemed to fade from print. Um, and there was a period where most of his work was, seemed to be unavailable, but now, well, that's, that's, now it's broadly yeah, now available. Yeah. Right. I think he did have the reputation of um, a writer's writer. There are people who are, uh, and you're right, Phil Farmer was one of them. When you looked at, what was the anthology, Songs of the Dying Earth, where you, and you find the breadth of writers who mm-hmm. uh, are, are influenced by him. I'm not sure that the integral edition is the sort of thing that would reach a popular audience necessarily. That's, uh, not, what it, that's, not, that's not its value. Uh, the value, no, the, I, the value. I mean, the, the, the VIE probably. I mean, they only, they, I think they maybe did like a thousand copies or something of the VIE, which yeah. just so for listeners basically is a forty-four volume set of all of Jack Vance's collected work. Yes. And it's been assiduously edited and proofed and checked and approved, and then digital text provided to to, to Vance's uh, family or to Vance. Now the value of it is those digital texts, not. The VIA itself. Yes, I think you're right. It's, he, he's available. Uh, mm. But my point about somebody being available is that they readers have to know to go to find this material. Yes. Yeah. Uh, from from a, from a point of view of an academic, this is invaluable. That kind of stuff is just something you want to have available for for researchers. But uh, I think you also need to get new generations reading them. And I think this is where I think uh, that Gene Wolfe has had some influence. Uh, that there are a number of readers enamored of Gene Wolfe and they want to know where did this come from. And it certainly didn't come up entirely from Jack Vance. Um, there is a whole sort of far future. I was reading, mm-hmm. um, and I have no idea whether uh, uh, whether Vance had any re- relationship to this at all, but I was reading some of uh, Rachel Swirsky's far future stories yeah. Uh, yeah. that are really uh, I mean, millions of years in the future, Stapledonian yeah. dimensions yeah. of time in the future. And I, it, it's one of those things where we were talking a little bit with, uh, with Lily Yu a, a couple of weeks ago. You don't know exactly where younger writers get their influences, but, but then there's a kind of um, domino effect. Uh, there is. That there is. all the writers influenced by Gene Wolfe are indirectly influenced by Jack Vance, for example. Absolutely true. Uh, Absolutely true. And, and, and that's the sort of thing that fascinates me. I think his way of conceiving the far future, way ahead of its time, and I'm, th- I'm only thinking about 
the the dying earth because that certainly is the most widely known of his but he had a very varied career that uh, that he established a template for writing about the distant future as essentially science fantasy mm-hmm. in a way similar to the only person I can think who's probably done anything like that in the last several decades is Kim Stanley Robinson's establishing a template for how you need to write about Mars. Um, maybe the other one that, occur- that occurs to me, though it's not as romantic, would be the way that Gibson established for writing about the street in the future. Uh, that's probably another good example, you're right. You know, There'll be a couple of those kind of examples, but you're right, it, it's not a common thing to do, not a common opportunity to have. And Vance writing when he did, and writing as um, widely as he did, you know, I mean, he was enormously prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the work survives to this day, and a healthy percentage of it is really excellent work. And it, it, fortunately, I guess, is that kind of um, fiction that doesn't become dated. You know, it's stylized. It's it's a, maybe a slightly acquired taste, but it's not archaic feeling. I mean, there, there are some real nuts. And, I mean, there are, there are. I mean, like because I've had to go through them, there are some. Um, clunky older bits and pieces but but the best of the stuff is timeless well the language was baroque but it wasn't baroque in an affected way if you know what i mean there's mm. a uh, the, 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 the the interestingly enough a writer that i used to when i was first reading them that i used to conflate in some ways with jack vance was clark ashton smith oh okay and clark ashton smith also had a baroque style also wrote some stories that took place in an indeterminate world that might have been a future, that might have been an mm-hmm. alternate universe, whatever. The difference was this, that Vance's style doesn't seem to have aged, and Smith's style seems to have aged. And I yes. think the reason is that I think Smith was aping a kind of 18th century ornate prose. Yeah. Um, and and Vance wasn't doing that. Vance was adjusting the prose to the culture he'd invented, rather than the culture he was inheriting it from. Yes. yes. Another I- a, 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 a comparison... Uh, another odd comparison, as long as we're off the wall. Um, one of the other great influential unread novels is probably William Hope Hodgson's The Nightland, mm-hmm. which is written in a really bad imitation of 17th century English prose. <laughs> uh, but it's fun. Imaginatively, it just blows your mind. When Greg Bear revisited that material in The City at the End of Time, he actually did a better job of writing in that language than Hodgson had. Mm-hmm. And actually, John C. Wright did the same thing in a series of novellas as well. Yes, he did. And I uh, seem so, to recall so that Neil Gaiman said he wanted to take a bash at it someday. Mm-hmm. Um, which goes to show just how powerful the imaginative material is, even if you know people keep saying, and I have to, I confess, I've not read The Nightland by Hodgson, that it is kind of dreadful. But it's, it's, it's if, if you get through the prose, it's absolutely stunning. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it wasn't for the writing, the story's great. But pretty much. <laughs> you realize that if you put that on the cover, not many people would actually buy that one? I mean, you know. Yeah, there is that. Um, but there, there are writers uh, who are, by any stretch of the imagination, bad writers that have enormously powerful influences. I mean, one of the earliest ones from a period slightly after Hodgson was David Lindsay, A Voyage to Arcturus. Uh, sentence by sentence, you can't really defend the voyage to Arcturus. Yeah. Um, but oh, I, I, I remember when I was—I did part of my dissertation on, on 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 David Lindsay, and I just made a habit for this is when I was first getting into the science fiction field 
mm-hmm. asking writers from uh, from Phil Farmer to Robert Silverberg. That everybody had read him. Everybody had yep. read him. Uh, Silverberg even did a version of A Voyage to Arcturus in Son of Man. Yeah. Uh, so there's somebody who you really can't defend too strongly as a as a prose writer, but whose ideas were so powerful and off the wall and um, compelling that that writers kept coming back to it. Yeah. The um, interesting. Well, the, was, we we started off by talking about the Dark Spring and. We haven't mentioned, so we had not mentioned Jack Vance. I felt bad about that. We had not talked about Ian Banks. Somebody else I never met, and I always thought I would. I always hoped I would. Um, yeah. I don't know where you... It, it's it's such a, a, a dreadfully sad story, you know, thing in such in some, some ways. He, you know, Banks obviously died very young. He was the same age. In fact, my dad was when he died. Mm-hmm. Um and very, very quickly, I think everybody would have hoped that he would have lived longer. And I think, you know, there's some hope that might have happened. I found it very, I think, particularly upsetting because he's one of those writers that was of a generation that I first experienced um, as a new writer. You know, I mean, when I started reading back when I was young, you know, I mean, I encountered Heinlein, and Heinlein, when I first read Heinlein, was already in his 60s or something, if I was even aware of him. And when Heinlein died in 1988, I think it was, he was in his 80s. And so it was sort of, I wouldn't say no, no surprise, but it was a very different kind of thing. Whereas Banks, I remember very clearly, you know, hearing buzz about Consider Phlebas and mm-hmm. hunting out a copy, being completely floored by the book. You know, I mean, I came to Banks through the culture, as a num- probably a number of science fiction readers did. So, I mean, like, I, I read, yeah. I read Consider Phlebas first, then I read uh, Player of Games, and then on. It was only later that I began to go back and read, you know, The Wasp Factory and The Bridge and Espadere Street and The Crow Road and those books. And the wit and the generosity of spirit and the humanity of the books is quite remarkable. I remember um, reading The Wasp Factory. Uh, because I had an idea, and it's not really a science fiction or fantasy novel. It's close enough, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I liked it a lot. I thought this is. That, that, I remember thinking at the at the time, not knowing that he was, you know, essentially a closeted science fiction writer at that point. I was thinking, okay, here's here's evidence of a really good literary satirical writer. Maybe I, I thought at the time in the tradition of Anthony Burgess. Yeah. Um, and. He seems to know his way around science fictional ideas. And then when Consider Phlebas came along, yep. I was thinking, oh, okay, he really does know what he's talking about. He's not he's not slumming in our territory. He's one no, of no, us. No, 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 no. I mean, and in fact, if you go back, uh, not, not he, he was one of us from, from birth. You know, yes, he, he read science true. fiction young. And I remember reading the historical etymology of the culture novels and how an, he'd written a lot of them in his teens – is the way I recall the story. He then got good enough with Consider Phlebas to have to, to have it come out. And the first group of culture novels, at least, was he was going back and tidying up the manuscripts that he'd written earlier. So Player of Games, Use of Weapons, Accession had been written much earlier and then came out. So, okay, so that, that I did not know that, actually. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense. And he also, I always, I never knew this, and I've, I've read interviews with him, but, but there was that clever idea of, I think, 
almost ironically using the middle initial. Um, I don't think it was ironic at all. Why, why ironic? Ironic because I think he wanted to de demonstrate how arbitrary the divisions were between genre fiction and mainstream fiction. I've not heard. I wouldn't. I wouldn't presume to talk to for the man. I've not he heard it put in those terms. I thought it was more just a simple. This is going to tell you what you're getting. You know that. that uh, I mean, well, I think because by the time um, uh, Consider Phlebas came out, he'd had three or four mm -hmm. novels out already. You know, he already he had the Lost Factory and Walking on Glass and the Bridge. You know, somebody out there listening to us probably can explain uh, this because uh, we probably should know it. Right, but but my sense is that yeah, there very well may have been a sense from an agent, from a publisher, from an editor saying that you know you can distinguish your markets this way, yeah. and you can tell the readers what to expect. I don't think that he was expecting uh, or hoping that the science fiction readers would avoid the mainstream novels or the mainstream readers would avoid the science fiction novels. I think using the middle initial was a clear indication. This is not a pseudonym. This is not no, no, something no. that. No, 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 no. That, this is me. This is the other version of me, and deal with it. And yeah. I, I like the attitude. I will say the other thing that I, the, the story I loved that I heard later, I'm mean, just just in the last handful of months, it was a commonly held thing that um, banks, you know, only wrote the science fiction for the money. And he really did, um, dis, you know, dissuade people about that. I think. Really? This, I, mean, I mean, look, I, I remember, in fact, I remember he was here for a writer's festival once, and mm -hmm. he was on a Australian television show on uh, our, one of the uh, subsidized uh, free-to-air channels, uh, SBS, and was interviewed by Dinny O'Hearn, who was an Australian literary personality of the day, mm. now deceased also, and O'Hearn insisted that he must, sh surely couldn't be taking the science fiction seriously, uh, that it was surely only ever done for um, for the money, and that the the real work was the the, um, the nonfiction work, or so the the, the non the non you know, the non genre work, and this had been around the time that the Crow Road came out, mm -hmm. and Banks Banks was hugely offended and and volubly getting annoyed at this idea that he would not, you know, uh, that, that, he, that his connection to science fiction was anything less than entirely legitimate and that it wasn't his most important work or, amongst it, or, or just as important. And plainly, the mainstream of the time struggled because, I mean, famously, I think, Faye Weldon gave him a, fant a fantastic quote for um, The Wasp Factory, and then mm -hmm. when he started write, writing science fiction, backed away from it. Uh, because she felt felt uncomfortable with it being associated with science fiction. Well, that probably I'm guessing the interviewer probably was somebody who hadn't read the science fiction because there there are two things that certainly mitigate against the idea that the science fiction was simply there for the money. One is that if you're out to make a lot of money, you don't title your first science fiction novel something like Consider Phlebas. Uh, <laughs> It's just not a. It's not what I consider a marketable title. Well, and the second thing is, you can't re you can't read a culture novel and think that this is somebody uh, just throwing off a a, a a weekend's worth of work. I mean, yeah, there's. Yeah. I, I've not read his more recent. I've not read his more recent novels at all. I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, 
be honest, I read the first couple of culture novels, I read the first couple of mainstream novels, and it, it, it's, it's clear that as much care, as much attention to language, as much structural thinking goes into the science fiction novels as the mainstream novels. Definitely. Uh, so I, I don't really think that's an issue at all. I think the other thing that's tragic, in when we talk to, um, well, you mentioned Heinlein was in his 80s, and uh, we, we talked about Jack Vance, who had essentially stopped writing fiction some time ago, that this happened with Banks not only very suddenly, but at a point where the, the, the Hydrogen Sonata is you know, up for this year's awards. I mean, he was, he was very active. Uh, very much uh, doing things in the field where you wanted to see what he's going to do next. It's true. So, I mean, one of the great um, one of the things I was going to say actually, it's interesting because I, I think that Banks is one of the most significant science fiction writers of the last thirty years, for just straight out of the box. One of the most significant and one of the most influential, and yet somehow not as broadly accepted in North America. That's true. That's absolutely true. And uh, and his mainstream novels are not even well known in North America. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never quite figured that out. I one one of the ironies, and Banks is the only person really to, almost the only person to test this with. But I'm wondering if 30 years from now his science fiction novels won't be more remembered and more influential than his mainstream novels are. H hard to know. The, the mainstream novels are very good. I, I don't think that'll that'll. It has nothing play. to do with their being good. It has I, no, nothing to I, I think that's wrong. I think you'll find that the Wasp Factory and the Bridge and whatever, the early ones, that they'll definitely be uh, in print and still being read and talked about. No, I'm not convinced. Well, um, what I will ask you is how come Ian Banks never won a major science fiction award? That, well, I think you're... The fact that he's not visible, or for some reason not visible in North America, not widely, well, he's widely read, but he's widely read among um, people who read intelligent science fiction. That sounds awful. Um, I know, let me back I mean, up. Come on, he's, he's never won the Nebula, never been nominated for Nebula, which I think well, really, okay. really undercuts the, the um, seriousness you take the Nebulas with. Um, I think he's been nominated once for Hugo, n never won. I think you're right. Uh, and as you go through the various awards that you think that he might potentially win, he has not won them. So, you know, really, um, if, we, if we were to use, as you and I sometimes do, we must put our hands up. If we were to use awards, nominations, etc., as being some kind of a guide to significance, he would fall by the wayside, and yet it would, all it really shows is just how big a hole those things can have when, in, in their worldview. Well, uh, there's a uh, – well, we've talked about this before also. There, there is a bias in North America toward North American writers. It's unfortunate, but I, I'm always, frankly, interested in what happens to the Hugo Awards when the Worldcon is – held outside of North America, mm -hmm. because you get a much more democratic worldwide vote there than yep. you do here. It's and true. I almost hate to admit that being a North American myself, but it's, um, it's even when the Hugo Awards are held in Canada, as they were a few years ago, you get a slightly different uh, take on it. So I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, the people who were attracted to the um, culture novels, the people who are attracted to Ian Banks in general, we're probably not Orson Scott Card readers. No, probably not. And in fact, what, what I find it interesting is, at least from my personal, completely subjective experience, Ian Banks' of science fiction is read much more widely outside science fiction than 
would be the case for many other people, other writers. It's much more mainstreamed science fiction in that sense. Well, I think the uh, the concepts, the the science fictional business in his novels is as competent as anybody's. He's thought Absolutely. it through from a fictional point of view. I think what he's done doing, what he's done, and it's similar to what M. John Harrison has done, is to write just really, really well at the level of character and setting so that a scene which is a, essentially a mainstream scene when you're dealing with the relationships with parents, with spouses, with gender relations, he's putting as much care into that as, um, as, as he puts into his mainstream novels. Mm-hmm. And that's very impressive to people from outside the field who read science fiction, especially people who approach it with the idea that this can't be really that serious, and then find out that it can be, but it depends on how it's written. I, yeah. um, I can think of one example. I, I've, I've met people in the mainstream. I know people in the mainstream who have, who have discovered a certain kind of science fiction. Uh, who have well, Bradford Morrow at Conjunctions Magazine, yep. who clearly was aware of Banks. He was aware of uh, of Mike Harrison. He was aware of Jonathan Carroll to get into yep. that. Or, so, so, so there is there is something to be said for quality of writing transcending genre, which is the only time I will use the term transcending genre, which is a term I hate. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think Ian Banks ever transcended genre or was ever interested in attempting to do so. Not at all. I mean, to put words so in his mouth. He was doing exactly what uh, the sort of thing that Harrison was doing, which is writing genre with the same kind of dedication to prose and, and, and all the mainstream qualities that go into a mainstream novel, plus they were science fiction novels. Yeah. That was what was impressive about his achievement. But we should move on because we've got... Well, there's just one last thing I want to say. Now, what I want to say very quickly is just this. Uh-huh. The impression I take walking away from the sad death of Ian Banks, enormous contributor to science fiction, is that he must have been huge fun. He sounds like the most enormous fun. I have Everybody. more than one story of him drinking scotch and, cl- and scaling the outside of buildings, of hotels. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're going to the World Fantasy in Brighton, and there's a story that apparently somebody at a at the convention was a host uh, hosted a party, and some of their jewelry was stolen from the suite. And just as the police came to the, uh, the, the hotel room door and came in, Banks was to be found scaling the outside of the balcony climbing up into the room because he, he was coming up to visit. That's wonderful. That's, there, there, there's a certain tradition of British writers, and I'm not sure it's limited to science fiction writers, but uh, of doing absolutely outrageous things. Yeah, um, it's fun. My own personal experience with that is limited to Brian Aldiss, and because he's an, it was another writer, by the way, who had a substantial mainstream career as well as a science fiction mm-hmm. writer's career. And I'm not going to embarrass Brian by recounting some of those, but he's he would recount them to us very cheerfully um, were he uh, talking to us now. So there is that. The, the, the fact that he was a bloke, he certainly seemed like a kind of a nice bloke. Everybody in, says in, the, so, in, yeah. in the good sense of the word. And a genuinely good guy. I mean, I will say, I would leave you, if you're listening to the podcast and you've never read Ian Banks, with three recommendations. Read Consider Phlebas, which I think is spectacular. Read The Crow Road, which I love and has one of my favorite opening lines of any book of all time. Mm-hmm. And read Raw Spirit, which is his uh, peregrinations through the highlands, going to various distilleries and trying single malt scotch. Ah, that's that must be his equivalent of M. John Harrison's books about rock climbing. And not, uh, that's a book about rock climbing and so forth. He did a BBC TV series about it. About, about single malts? Yeah. 
called Raw Spirit. Wow. Wonderful. Yes, and it is. It's, it's huge fun. So in amongst all of that, you will find Ian Banks. At, uh, and if I had to pick a book, The Crow Road, I think, is my favorite. It's and I, I I wouldn't overlook the Wasp Factory even though he refined the techniques he had in that novel. It's it's it's, it's still for a first novel was surprisingly genre bending to use the currently mm. popular phrase. Anyway, you're going to move on to other things. Well, we can we, okay we can make short shrift of this because he was not a major science fiction writer. He's somebody I happen to have met a few times, and most people don't even remember his contribution to the science fiction field was. The Reverend Andrew M. Greeley, a mm-hmm. priest here in Chicago, who had edited an anthology of religious science fiction, had written a couple of science fiction novels, had written lots of bestsellery things, and frankly was not a very good novelist. <laughs> but the reason, but, but he was enormously successful. I mean, his novels hit the bestseller list. And what I liked about him, um, and I only met him once or twice. I used to do a radio show, and I had him on once. Is that, however, he developed he got a doctorate in sociology from the university of chicago he was uh on the on, on the faculty there he had, he was a, he had an academic career he had a best-selling steamy romance kind of career exposing mm-hmm. exposing things about the catholic church that we thought were scandalous when he was writing the novels but later turned out to be absolutely true <laughs> and then writing science fiction and, and fantasy and absolutely as far as i could tell never had any sense that this was any different from anything else he was writing yeah, and that attitude. Whether he was a, he, he's he's not a writer. I think he's going to be remembered in thirty years for much of anything. Possibly some of his sociology, but he was one of the first writers I remember reading, a mainstream writer, who didn't see science fiction or fantasy as slumming. He thought it's a, it's it's a tool to be used by a writer like anyone else, and um, it, it, it was an attitude. I guess it was more his attitude than his fiction that attracted me to that. Um, mm. And to be honest, I only read one of his science fiction novels, and to give you an idea of how well I remember it, I don't remember the title. <laughs> Fair not enough. A, not a, but, but he was, he was, it seemed to me to be an honest person, and he yeah. was really uh, a gadfly. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 the most recent one, which we, uh, somebody I had met, is Park Godwin. Yes, he, he uh, passed away this week, sadly. This week, and that was sad. It was, again, someone who had not written... Um, uh, in probably what ten years or more, yep. I would say, yep. and whose uh, the work that I really admired most of his was his Arthurian trilogy that began with Fire Lord. Yes, and I remember reading that. And this is one of the odd things that strikes me about um, about my reading habits before and after I was reviewing books for Locus. Yes, I think Fire Lord came out around 1980 or something like that. Which meant that I read it and, and, and the two novels that followed, and I read one of the Robin Hood novels because I just wanted to. Nobody yes. was making me. I didn't have to review them. <laughs> and I thought this was – the Fire Lord, I thought, was the first – it may not have been the first, but it was certainly the first one I read, which more or less reconsidered Arthurian legends in almost a hard-boiled sense. Mm-hmm. And it was a very good novel. Yeah. Um, and he was a very skilled novelist. I remember meeting him um, – Probably in the 1980s, and I'm not sure where, more than once, and realizing that he had a a, a genuine seriousness of purpose about reconsidering classic materials. And what he was doing both with, especially, I guess, with the Arthurian material and with the Robin Hood material is something that everybody's doing now. Yeah. Yes, it is. Very very much. much 
Yeah. And I think his most famous work is probably The Fire When It Comes, mm. which is a novella that came out in 1981. And if I recall, oddly appeared in a uh, Datlow Windling Best of the Year in the mid-1990s, because that was when Windling had first encountered it. Mm-hmm. Which was a, an idiosyncratic decision, shall we say, uh, at the time. He also wrote two very good satirical SF novels, uh, the, the Snake Oil, Oil War, War books, uh, Waiting for the Galactic Bus and the Snake Oil Wars. And I, I mean, I, and I adored actually Sherwood, which I thought was one of his two Robin Hood books. which was a very mm-hmm. good book. Uh, and apparently, and this says a lot about how the science fiction field is progressing these days, or uh, apparently he um, had three novels completed at the time of his death, which may well come out uh, posthumously. You wonder when he completed them, because I mm. gather he somewhat disabled the last few years. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he was he was okay when he was guest of honor at uh, World Fantasy a year or two ago, but then declined. Uh, mm-hmm. But I th- my recollection is that it had been some time since he'd had a new book published, so he may well have been... Uh, building up the, the, these these books, so, you know, because I think the last book that had come out probably had been in the mid to late eighties, maybe early nineties or something. That's my memory, yeah, it was maybe ninety one. I'm thinking, mm. um, and I hadn't kept up with those either because by that time I wasn't being able to read things just because I could choose to read them. But yeah, uh, my 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 memory of him was being almost courtly, very yes. very thoughtful, very uh, civilized. Yes, very well spoken. But again, that goes back. I'm I'm sure to the 1980s, and I, I'm not even as I'm sure he may have been at ICFA that uh, one year, or it may have been at the World Fantasy where yeah. he was yeah. best of honor. Yeah. But he was clearly somebody who had made an an important contribution to the field, and probably is not as widely read today as he should be. No, I, th- I but I think we could we could do a hundred podcasts about writers who sadly fall into that uh, category. Sadly, or, sad. well, okay, are, are, there, are there other people we should, because we could segue into writers who ought to be remembered for more than one thing, which is a separate topic, but are there any other elegiac moments that we need for this podcast? I think we have perhaps devoted an, enough uh, time to, to, to elegies. I mean, uh, Jack Vance's passing was sad, if not unexpected, at 96. Mm. Uh, Park Godwin's would, is, is similar. He was in his mid-80s. Uh, and the same, I think, for uh, Andrew Greeley. Uh, Ian Banks is, of course, as a young man, he's 59, was, was terribly sad and terribly young. And by no means the youngest or um, you know science fiction writer or fantasy writer to die in the last 30 years, but particularly sad, I think. But you know, maybe it might be nice to turn our attention towards slightly happier things, uh, other than to exhorting everybody who has not read any of that the quartet of gentlemen who have mentioned to perhaps go and try their work. Um, what we might actually sort of turn our attention to now, Gary, before this this emergency backup podcast that we probably will broadcast during the um, Locus Awards weekend goes to air. What? You're looking at me now. Everybody, we got video. Like, oh, He's just looking oh, at I'm, me. I, somehow mentioning Park Godwin and um, and thinking about Jack Vance. I mean, Jack Vance, with this wide variety of work, and most people who haven't read him will think, oh, yeah, The Dying Earth. And I was thinking, okay, other writers who need to be remembered for more than what they've been remembered by. In other words, I was thinking about writers. I'll tell you who I'm thinking about right now is Peter S. Beagle. Okay. Uh, And 
here's an interesting example. Peter S. Beagle is still widely known among people who don't even read fantasy sure. for The Last Unicorn. And he's done a remarkable job in the last decade yes. of creating a second career for himself with these wonderful, sometimes autobiographical stories. They're not reaching the same audience as The Last Unicorn. So what I want to say to readers, if you think Peter Beagle is the guy who wrote The Last Unicorn, you should, and or a fine and private place, or I see by my outfit, um, that you should, you know, look at the things he's been doing in the last 10 years. Look at his last three or four short story collections. I think all are from Tachyon. Yeah. And um, or, realize or, it's... Yeah. Or the this big is best somebody who's yeah. yeah the best the best was the, was that a te- was that that was subterranean sub, subterranean the best of Peter Regal yeah that was, was this um, book well I mean here's here's a writer who has written an undisputable classic of fantasy it's it's not people who have not read the last unicorn it's much more joicy and it's full of puns it's full of jokes it's full of cultural references it's much more fun than people so I don't want to dis- disparage that at all. But for, for a long time, he was writing other uh, very strong novels, like The Innkeeper's Song, mm-hmm. and not quite breaking through that barrier of the guy who wrote The Last Unicorn. In my mind, he's broken through that barrier. I don't know if he's done it with a general reading audience yet. Well, I think what there you're asking for an awful lot of any writer. And by, by that, I, what I mean by that is... You don't often in your career get to write a defining work or to publish, I don't mean write, but to publish a defining work. And The Last Unicorn is a true classic of the field uh, that re- you know, reaches th- throughout our field and beyond it. How many people get to write one of those, never mind two or three? You know, That's a good point. That's a very good point. But it was a young Peter Beagle writing that. Yes. But then look at Bill and- Gibson. I mean, come on. I mean, has he really transcended Neuromancer? I would argue that Bill Gibson's last four novels are better novels than Neuromancer. I, I wouldn't disagree. I'm not saying artistically, but nor are you. You're talking reputation in terms of reputation. That's probably true. I, I think it's very possible that uh, you know Neuromancer that, that there is a vast cultural audience out there, maybe who haven't read the book, who know the name Gibson because of Neuromancer. That yeah. probably is true. There are people who yeah. know the name Beagle because of. The Last Unicorn. There yeah. are no, nobody's thinking people. of Bill Gibson as Bill Gibson, author of Idoru, and distrust that particular flavor. No, but I think there are a lot of people who might be thinking in terms of uh, virtual light. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, uh, I, 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 I think you're right. I think the, the writing a genre-defining work the way uh, Bill Gibson did, or for that matter, the way Peter Beagle did, because in some ways, the, the Last Unicorn was the first. I hate to say this, but the first postmodern fantasy, yeah, uh, and it's, it's been done to death since then. Um, I don't think people should ignore those works at all. That's not my point. My point is that those writers are still producing interesting and different things these days. Yeah, yeah. There are writers who, uh, and I don't know the history behind this. I'm sure Michael Swanwick does. Writers like Hope Merlees, who yeah. writes Lead in the Mist, an absolutely classic fantasy, and then basically walks away from the field. Yeah. She did what she wanted to do, and uh, it's a classic work, and it's the only thing she's remembered by now, yes. except for a couple of odd poems that are uh, of a, appealing only to aficionados. Um, David Lindsay's A Voyage to Arcturus, there is at least a couple of other interesting Lindsay novels. There are no 
more badly written than a voyage to arcturus but they've had <laughs> that's that's quite a recommendation isn't I, it? I have to say i mean you you are really driving me to rush out and read the collected works of david Lindsay. i can't wait to, to get it devil's tour is an important novel and devil's tour i <laughs> uh, okay I'm, I'm, I'm getting into my area here but devil's tour is the sort of thing that you could understand better had you read graham joyce before you go to it or had you read arthur mackin before you go to it <laughs> Yeah, but my point is this: writers. Okay, we've mentioned two of them. We mentioned Gibson and Beagle. Writers who write one almost defining classic work, and then have to have a career after that. Yeah. Who else is there? Uh, I'd have to think around for a while. I would. I know from teaching occasionally um, that there are students who are. Uh, Younger students, not not people my age, uh, but students, you know, college age, who yeah. know the Foundation trilogy and they know the robot stories. And as far as they're concerned, Asimov did nothing after that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I've got nothing to add to that. Well, that that, that obviously obviously is a sign of a line of discussion which is going nowhere. Possibly not. <laughs> No. Well, I mean, here's here's an interesting. Well, a good a good a a, here's an interesting much, thing. Yeah. Well, one of the okay, one of the um, one of the writers who is challenging himself continually, and we expect to be talking <clears throat> talking to him sometime soon, is Neil Gaiman, because there was a lot of feeling among Neil Gaiman followers as a fiction writer. Forget about the Sandman people. The Sandman people are. Are there? Mm-hmm. He's never going to do another Sandman. I mean, if he does, it'll be another Sandman. But there were a lot of people who thought, okay, American Gods is Neil Gaiman's contribution to fantasy. Yeah. And it turns out, it's not. It's not his only contribution to fantasy, and it's not characteristic of his contributions to fantasy. Has he written his definitive work of prose yet? Definitive work of prose. I'm deliberately excluding. Uh, his comics work and whatever else, because I think Sandman is his definitive work, you know, comics work. Uh, I don't think that's a big statement at all. Uh, but he's written an array of uh, novels now for adult and young adult audiences. Uh, you've got books like Coraline, books like The Graveyard Book. You've got American Gods. You've got Neverwhere, which is less of a, a complete novel, really, for, for reasons of, of its origin. Mm-hmm. And then you've got you know the new book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. You know, has he written his definitive book? What I think is likely with Neil is, even though I suspect actually it's possible that Ocean at the End of the Lane will be his definitive prose work. Um, his reputation is so diverse, he's not going to be defined by any one of them anyway now. That could very well be. But one of the things that I'm, I'm sure Neil thinks about this, Maybe. he said he does. Yeah, okay. There's, there's going to be a period when the massive, the massive celebrity... Um, Will sustain itself for a long time. He's he's earned the celebrity he has, but there is going to come a time when people start looking at the works that he has. My guess right now is that the Ocean at the End of the Lane is his most perfect work, but the Ocean at the End of the Lane and the Graveyard Book both imply a larger epic in the same way that the Hobbit implied a larger epic. Mm-hmm. There's an enormous backstory, which is 
alluded to in the graveyard book. Yes. And which is alluded to in the ocean at the end of now the Now you're lane. cheating. He said this himself. And, and the two backstories have something in common. Yeah. And, he, and as I say, he said this himself. He said there is a Lord of the Rings out there which he may mm-hmm. write one day. But if he doesn't, it's um, it's not as though he hasn't produced. But, but 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 again, I think I think you're right. I think he's been so diverse. He's done so many things in so many different genres at this point that he's not been defined by by one particular work. So we're still we're still left with our two examples of being. <laughs> Look, I'm sure when we finish up, we will think of a hundred of them. We'll think of a hundred other examples. People can people can post comments on the. Um, Website and suggest people who might have, uh, you know, written more than one. There, there, there were writers. There are writers who did write subsequent novels. Here's an example of somebody else because uh, mm-hmm. he's he was very, very influential among other writers. A guy named John Myers Myers. Oh yes, I'm, I'm, yes, uh, Silverlock. Silverlock and Silverlock was one of the first literary fantasies. Silverlock was the predecessor to all the sort of thing that Jasper Ford and other people have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and it turns out that he had written other novels. I read one of them. I don't think anybody's going to ever read anything much but Silverlock. Uh huh. I have one for you. What about Jan- John Crowley? Little Big. Ah. I have. Uh, you're thinking about Little Big, I suppose. That's why. I, that's why I said Little Big. Yeah. <laughs> I th- oh, I didn't hear you say Little Big. <laughs> I th- well, Crowley is somebody who, in my mind, is like Gaiman. Crowley has written absolutely elegant science fiction. I think Great Work of Time is one of the handful of great time travel sure. stories. Ever. Um, he's written mainstream novels like Four Freedoms, mm-hmm. uh, which have not done as well. They haven't stayed in print. Little Big became a classic in fantasy. Because Little Big became a classic in fantasy, Crowley began to be thought of as a fantasy writer. And yet he began as a science fiction writer with Engine Summer. Uh, he continued, he and he continued with uh, with mainstream novels, with the translator, with things that uh, gained him a great deal of respect, if if not bestseller status, in the literary community. So I think you're right. I think among a certain category of fantasy readers, uh, that became the classic. And of course, the um, the quartet, which ended with uh, endless things. The Egypt quartet, yeah. The Egypt quartet is probably more of a classic, but not as widely read and probably never will be as widely read. But, but then, okay, here's the thing. Def- define classic. Is classic simply well done? Because I would argue that the Egypt Quartet is not a classic at all because it is not widely read and will never be widely read. It, it had declining readership throughout its uh, authorship to the point where it ended up at a small press and I don't think there's ever been a single publisher put out a consistent edition of it. Not because this is not a qualitative thing. This is purely a size of readership and sales and awareness kind of thing, right? I think in that sense, although yeah, you could say that although it is a major work, it is not a work that is widely read. Um, not now. That doesn't mean it won't be. I mean, if classic is based on the what, readership, what's going to get it rediscovered? Um. Give you an example uh, from mainstream literature. Mm-hmm. Moby Dick was an unknown, despised, fairly failed novel from 1851 until sometime in the 1920s. Yeah. Um, when it was rediscovered as something other than an obsessive, you know, study of cetacean blubber, uh, there's a lot of stuff about whaling in it and so forth and so. On. But the point is, it did get rediscovered. It was a classic. Melville's other novels are read only by Melville scholars now. 
Moby Dick may not be read by a lot of people, but it certainly is started by a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, no, look, I, I, I traveled the world. I took a copy of Moby, Moby Dick with me in my backpack. Uh-huh. I read it's the introduction to it several times. Well, there you go. Uh, but the point is, if you make your way through it, it's 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 astonishing. I've never made my way through Proust. I've made my way through the first volume of Proust. Of well done. I think you deserve applause. But nevertheless, uh, it it could be that the Egypt Quartet is something like that. Yeah. Uh, and 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 a classic in the sense that you know what will be read of an author's work fifty or sixty years from now. I think in terms of what you're talking about, the dual meaning of classic. Classic being something which is discovered by sub subsequent generations of readers, and classic as something which is successful during the current generation, that in Crowley's term, Little Big is that. Little yeah. Big is his classic for people who are currently reading. Um, I I think very highly of his other novels as well. I happen to be very fond of Four Freedoms, which was not a successful novel by any measure. Uh, and he has told me that, so it's not something he's... Yeah, yeah uh, unaware of, yeah. Commercially, at least, uh, unaware of. So, so there's the, there's the hope that these things will somehow survive, and I don't know. Um, but I, in in terms of what you're talking about within the fantasy community, I think you're probably right. I yeah. think probably Little Big is still a bigger, more looming title than the entire Egypt Quartet. Well, I think, Gary, we have we have managed to get to almost an hour, and since I feel like we've this is one of those ones where we've been stretching, we might wind up. What do you say? I well, we we were we were going pretty well, pretty well with our elegies there. Well, um, I don't think we need to pat ourselves too much on the back. We did go twenty minutes over on the last podcast with it with, uh, I guess, I guess with Mike Harrison, so we can we can be economical here. We we can be. We can we can cut a few off. Although one of the things I do want to think about is when we start talking about. People who are um, advanced age and that sort of thing, uh, and, and Peter Beagle comes to mind. John Crowley is not that advanced no. in age and so forth. Uh, but writers who were they to die tomorrow, and any number of them, and we could talk about Neil, who's young. We could talk about Gibson, who's not young but not old. Um, writers, if they were to just disappear from the world tomorrow, what would they re be remembered by? And I think you're right. Uh, I think that. There are, I think there are, one other example, mm. I think there are much better Neil Stevenson novels than Snow Crash. Sure, <coughs> absolutely. Cryptonomicon. And Cryptonomicon is one. Uh, I like the historical novels, perhaps because I'm one of the few people I talked to who actually read all three of them. Um, the, uh, but, but nevertheless, there's a huge chunk of the audience out there who still thinks of Neil Stevenson in terms of Snow Crash, or possibly in terms of um, the Diamond Age, possibly in terms of Cryptonomicon, and yet he's done a lot of interesting things since then. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really think that um, Anathem is ever going to be a popular favorite. Possibly not. Nor read me. But I, or read me. I think, or, or read me, or read me, or whatever it is. Uh, but I think those are the things that will be kept alive by people who are devoted to him. Now, Neil's particular problem, Stevenson's particular problem, is that he writes really long novels in a in an age which is not accustomed to really long novels. That's true. And I have to say, his problem with me as a reader, who, you know, having discovered him with Snow Crash, is I ran out of time to read those really long novels. I mean, I've not read Reem D because it is really big. Um, you know, so. Anyway, so anyway yeah. we, sh we shall wind up, we Gary. 
we shall wind up. We shall hope to have information or discussions about the Locus Awards in a bit. Yes. And, and hopefully we'll talk to Lucia Shepard. I have my fingers crossed about that. <clears throat> yeah, in the next uh, few weeks, this is not quite the beginning of my convention season. That started with ICFA. And it's continuing with the Locus Awards. We'll continue with ReaderCon after that. And then I will be going to, I guess, San Antonio. I've got to say, it seems to me that your convention season, Gary, lasts for all but a month and a half of the year. No, that's not true at all. Oh, come on. You come after World Fantasy and you're out in, what, by ICFA, if not before? World Fantasy is over at the beginning of November and ICFA is toward the end of March. That's November, December, January. It's five months. Speaking of someone who's living in, uh, in the far side of the world, it seems like it's every two weeks. I'm off at another convention. I'm going here. And then you go, oh, I can't afford to go to this one. Yeah, that's because you went to nine others, for crying out loud. Well, I know. There's that. There's the thing. That, um... Well, I'm going to go outside since it's late evening where I am. Yep. And take a look at the full moon, which is at perigee, which means that the moon is larger than it will be for the rest of the year. Fantastic. And, of course, here in sunny Perth, where it is actually winter now, as I look out on the blue sky and the you know, the cool, fresh day awaiting me, though I have yet another podcast to record, Gary, on yes. for the weekend, um, hopefully I get out and see a little bit of that, stretch my legs and get to enjoy it, and maybe do a bit of reading in the afternoon. I have a metric ton of stuff to read. I have books from the end of the collapse of all the love of science fiction to read. I have science fiction disco books and glitter and mayhem books and all kinds of things. Yeah. It's going to be good. Well, we should talk sometime in the next couple of weeks about what we're reading because I have a couple of interesting novels. I have a new Kim Stanley Mm -hmm. Robinson novel, a newly translated Wolfgang Jeschke novel, which is something fascinating. And uh, I feel like there's a sense of discovery there. So let's, Catch up on reading the next time we chat. Well, we shall. Okay. Well, from now, well, well, as of now, fare thee well until uh, Seattle. Until I'm in Seattle at the Locus Awards, and I hope to talk to you from there. Okay. Well, from from, you know, from me here, we remain now as ever, the meandering, slightly lost at sea, Mullers of Cood Street. <laughs>